Welcome to the Living the Dream Podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. Hello and welcome to another episode of Living the Dream with Curveball. I'm your host, Curveball, and today I am joined by Frank King. He is a mental health comedian, and he is also a previous writer of The Tonight Show. Frank, thank you for joining me today. I am delighted. Please uh, forgive the cat noises in the background. I took one of my kitties in for a little spa day and, uh, you know, get her uh, bathed and brushed out. So you may hear her complaining about (laughs) about the experience as we go along. Oh, no problem. Why don't you start off by telling everybody who you are, a little bit about yourself and some background. Yeah, I am a comedian by trade. I told my first joke in the fourth grade, everybody laughed, including the teacher. And I thought I'm gonna be a comedian. And in 12th grade, they had a talent show, senior talent show, and nobody had ever done stand-up before. So I thought, you know what? If I, if I do stand up, I can write, direct, produce, and star in my own little show every night. So I did stand up uh, second semester of my senior year in high school, and I won. Uh, I told my mama, I'm going to be a comedian. And she said, son, you're going to school. You're going to college. I don't care what you do when you get done. Uh, you can be a goat herder for all I care, but you are going to be a goat herder with a college degree. So... I went to the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, got a couple of degrees, and then moved to San Diego, California with my high school and college sweetheart and started selling insurance. Well, just by coincidence, Curtis, in San Diego, there's a branch of the world-famous comedy store on Sunset. And I went to open mic night twice just to see what the competition was like, and it was horrible. But 85% of them weren't funny, and I thought, I'm at least that funny just walking around. So. The third time I got up, I did my five minutes. I did. I'm sure if I heard it now, I would just shudder. But at the time I did well. And so I, uh, I, I heard inside my head, I'm home and I'm going to do this for a living. I have no idea how I'm going to do that. But it's one of those things where I thought about doing a keynote speech called, what could you do if you didn't know no better? I had no idea how hard it is to make a living doing stand-up. So I got 10 weeks booked on the road. I said to my girlfriend, expecting the worst, I'm going on the road to be a comic. You want to come along for the ride? And she said, yes. So we gave up our apartment, our jobs, put everything in storage. We couldn't fit into my little tiny Dodge Colt. And she and I were on the road for 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop, no home, seven years and change. And then I did a little radio in my old hometown of Raleigh, North Carolina. I uh, took a number one morning show and drove it to number six in 18 months. Uh, a friend of mine goes, you didn't, you didn't just drive that into the ground. You drove that into Middle Earth. True. Uh, and by the time I got done with the radio, the comedy club circuit was fading. So since I had been a clean act, I made the jump from the bar room to the boardroom, from comedy club comedy to corporate comedy. And I did what they call the rubber chicken circuit, you know, because every conference, every convention, they serve chicken at dinner. And so I told jokes after dinner, after lunch, rode that till 2007-ish. And then 
the last recession hit and my business fell off 80%. Practically overnight, we filed chapter seven bankruptcy, lost everything we'd worked for in 25 years. And that's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like, literally. Spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger. That usually gets a laugh from the audience, a nervous laugh. Uh, I followed up with a friend of mine was in the audience. He'd never heard me say that before about not pulling the trigger. He came up afterwards. He goes, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, could you try to sound slightly less disappointed? So in 2014, I decided I had a networking keynote and an inspirational keynote and a cardiac keynote. I thought, you know what? Given my family history, my close call was suicide. I'm going to give a little education on suicide prevention, and I'm going to speak on that. And, and to rebrand, I did my first TEDx, first of five. I was selected seven times for a TEDx, only able to make five because of some conflicts on the calendar. Did my first TEDx because, you know, everybody thought of me as a funny guy. Nobody thought of me as, as doing anything serious. And that first TEDx, I came out on stage as depressed and suicidal. And that was the beginning of my rebranding as a, uh, not a funny speaker, but a speaker who is actually funny. And that's kind of where we are today, Curtis. Well, before we get into talking about how does a comedian get into suicide and depression, talk, <laughs> let's talk about um, um, your experience at, at the Tonight Show. Yeah, you know, Jay Leno was a permanent guest host for Johnny back in the day. And Johnny was very mercurial. He would, he would tell his staff on a Friday night, hey, look, I'm taking next week off. Which meant, I don't know if, you're, if you have older listeners, they know that Monday nights was always best of cars in a rerun. But Jay had to cover four nights, Tuesday through Friday, and every monologue had 18 jokes. So he had, he had to write 18 jokes per night for four nights. So he got to where he was, he was contracting with road comics to write jokes and fax them in. We were called fax writers. And so when Jay got the word he was going to be filling in, we got the word, okay, start pumping the material my way. And I would, I would send in 12 to 24 jokes a day all on news, you know, topical. And I was getting a couple on a week. And then when he got the show for real, they let go most of the contract labor, but they kept me on. So I wrote for him until he left the show and went over to CNBC for his car show. So you actually knew Johnny Carson and Jay Leno? Did you actually interact with them or you just wrote their stuff? Oh, no, I did not know Johnny, uh, but I did have met Jay several times. Uh, very nice guy. He's, he does, when I had, I had um, open heart surgery in 1995, I was born with a bad aortic valve. I inherited it from my father who died at 40. And so I went in for a valve replacement. And one of the other writers told Jay that I was in the hospital. So the first message on my machine when I got out of intensive care was Jay. Hey, heard you had heart surgery. Uh, it's a good thing you didn't have it in LA. They take it out and leave it out. Take a couple of weeks off. That's the kind of guy he is, you know, he, he, he's thoughtful and he does things like that just because he likes doing things. Like that. So what made you leave the Tonight Show? Sound like that was a pretty good deal. Well, he left, you know, they, uh, NBC, it was, it was a number one late night show. And they, I think they decided, you know, they needed to young it up a bit. And so uh, I imagine they probably asked Jay to leave, you know, gracefully and graciously. I don't think he would have left because he's he is he has a work ethic like nobody's business. I, I think he would have rid, ridden that horse until it died. And so did you leave? Did you leave because of Jay Leno or? Yep, I left when he left. We all everybody was writing for him. That was the end of our 
you know, our writing career with Leno. And I wrote a little bit for Dennis Miller in the, in the back of the day, I wrote a little bit for Joan Rivers. I was on her talk show uh, once. Um, so yeah, I've, I've written for a number of people and, and worked with back when they were just comedians, Rosie O'Donnell and Ellen DeGeneres and Foxworthy and Ron White, you know, back when they were just road comics as I was back in the day. Right. Now let's talk about the TED Talks, the TEDx Talks. How many TEDx Talks do you have? And if uh, and there are any listeners out there that wanted to get a TEDx Talk, uh, how would you coach them to get one and explain what a TEDx Talk is for new listeners that might be listening? Yes, yeah, so TEDx, um, TED, TED Talks, once a year, there's a big international speaking convention or conference called TED Talks or TED. And that stands for Technology Engineering Design, I believe it is. And so people like Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, uh, Elon Musk speak at the big international TED Talks. The X implies local. And pretty much every city of any size has at least one TEDx talk a year. Some have more than one. And I've done five. I've been picked seven times, but the two of those, I had a conflict. I had a paid speaking engagement. I could not make the, the TEDx talk. And the way you get it is you go online and open up the Google machine. And in the search bar, you type TEDx applications 2021, because that's, that's, these, this is like a five month runway for TEDx. So TEDx talks that are going to be happening in March or now the application process is open. So type in TEDx applications 2021 and you will find a lot of the TEDx events have websites or they've got a Facebook page and on the website or on the Facebook page, you can usually find the link to apply. And it's a very simple application. They ask you, what is your idea worth spreading? That's the idea behind a TEDx talk. They want you to have an idea worth spreading. Uh, basically, what are you going to be teaching the audience in the room with you and the audience you know, around the world on YouTube when it posts? And so they ask you what your idea worth spreading is. And then they ask you to, you know, usually in a sentence or two, and then they ask you to flesh it out, maybe 250 words. And then they usually ask, now, why are you the person who should be delivering this talk? Those are three basic questions on almost every application. And they get a couple hundred applications and they select three, four dozen people to give auditions to. Normally it's a five minute conversation on Zoom. You give them an overview, then they do some Q&A and they almost always ask you in the Q&A, okay, now tell us what you're gonna teach our audience. What are the action items that, you know, what are the learning objectives for your presentation? And if you pass that audition, then you get on stage at a TEDx event and you do anywhere from 12 to 18 minutes and they, they choose how long you speak. And I coach people through that process because as you might imagine if there's 100 or 200 applications, whatever you put down in those boxes on the application needs to be really, really interesting, intriguing, a little mysterious. So they, they want to read on. They want to read the title, subtitle, and then the idea. And then they like that, so they get the next paragraph where you flesh out the idea. And finally, they read, well, why are you the person who should be doing this talk? So my job really is to make the application as attractive as possible to the committee, because like I said, they get a couple hundred of them. 
So yours really has to stand out to get an audition. Right. Well, let's talk about being a comedian and talking about suicide and depression. How did you balance that when talking to an audience? You know, I know you like to tell jokes, but how did you keep it serious enough to let them know, hey, I, I'm a comedian, but what happened to me is not a laughing matter. And, you know, if you're going through this, you know, how, how did you uh, create that balance? Because, you know, we're going through tough times now and, and people need to kind of, you know, hear it. Oh, Lord. Uh, yeah, I'm really worried about people who are not mentally ill, just people who are neuronormal or normal because, you know, it's called situational depression. They've never been depressed before. But because of the uncertainty, uh, furloughs, layoffs, you know, evictions, foreclosures, people who are otherwise normal are now experiencing situational depression and don't know how to handle it. So I've been doing podcast after podcast, teaching normal people how mentally ill people handle waking up in an uncertain world every day. And it's, it's most people who are high functioning mentally ill have what's called a a self-care plan and mine involves diet which I, I i do the keto diet and i i do intermittent fasting exercise i've got an old um, nordic track at home and some stretchy bands and perfect push-ups so diet exercise good night's sleep very important very restorative good night's sleep meditation and i take medication and i tell people who are normal look if you're depressed and i recommend you have a telehealth meeting with a mental health professional and determine if you are in fact situationally depressed. If you are, then medication may be indicated and don't think you're going to have to take this the rest of your life. You know, this, this pandemic, it will pass, you know, and life will return to near normal. And, and when it does, you can taper off the antidepressants. Um, so that my advice is have a self-care plan, diet, exercise, good night, sleep, meditation, medication. And also Curtis, have a schedule. They ask a guy who was on the space station for a year by himself. They go, how do you handle that sort of social isolation? He said, one word, routine. He said, I got up every morning about the same time. I went to bed at night about the same time. I, I had my meals about the same time. I exercised at the same time. I binge watched Netflix or whatever is available in space at the same time. He said, it's really important. And now, you know, most people now who are furloughed or laid off or, or, you know, can't go back to work, they're used to going into work eight o'clock. You know, they've got a, they've got a very solid set of things they need to do that day. You know, the whistle blows at five o'clock, they go home and now they're at home working at home perhaps. And they don't have that kind of structure, which I think really for normal people who aren't used to that kind of thing, it, it really can leave you with the situational depression. So, and, I'm hoping that the world will return to normal at some point, but the way I balance the comedy and the, and the suicide prevention, I don't tell jokes about it because you know, there's nothing funny really about depression or thoughts of suicide. However, there is humor in the situation and most of it is, is things that have happened to me that are funny wrapped around my mental health story. Like I told you, my friend came up and said, Hey man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? Well, could you try to sound a little less disappointed? Those are the kind of stories I tell. And only every so often, just enough comic relief to make the information digestible. Because, you know, if you, I do, I have a three-hour suicide prevention um, CE, continuing ed, for dentists. And to talk about death and dying for three hours, I just, I, I just, I'm not sure anybody could sit through that. 
without you know without a lighter moment here or there and and Curtis when I speak I do a keynote 45 minutes and do some Q&A oftentimes people are lined up afterwards with individual questions so I always tell them look uh, we'll do a little general Q&A and then if you got a question you don't want to ask in front of everybody I'll hang out answer individual questions until we're done sometimes it's one person sometimes it's eight but by going on stage and being vulnerable and telling my story, especially as a man, because men tend not to share their emotions, it gives other people permission to get to tell their story. And I've got friends who speak on similar topics, and the same thing happens to them. When they reveal, you know, there's a woman who speaks on domestic abuse, and, and invariably, when she gets done, there's a line of people, a line of women to talk to her, share their story. So my job, really, and my clients tell me this, is to come in and start the conversation on suicide. Because even though one person in the US dies every 11 minutes of suicide, hardly anybody talks about it. However, Curtis, I discovered early on, if you bring it up, if you mention the words depression and suicide out loud, almost everyone has a mental health story. You are right, and that's definitely why I wanted to get you on the show. Now, does mental health uh, run in your family? Oh, Lord. Uh, uh, yes, mental mental I, illness? Yeah, as I like to say, my... my um, my, I got more nuts in my family than in a squirrel turd. Uh, it's it's called generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old and I screamed for days. And that story is in my first TEDx talk. It's called A Matter of Laugh or Death. Matter of Laugh or Death. Uh, and I myself, as I mentioned earlier, can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like because I came that close to dying by suicide. And it run it it can run in families. It is in our family organic and chemical, and just it's just the way we are, you know, we are wired. Uh, and I mean, for, like for some people, as I mentioned, it's situational. It'll it will pass. In my family, it's not gonna it's not gonna not gonna. Pass. What I have, I have two mental health mental illnesses. Uh, one is called major depressive disorder. It's major depressive disorder lasts anywhere from two days to two weeks, and it recurs, kind of like a flat spot on a wheel. Every now and then the flat spot hits the, you know, the pavement. I take a medication, so the time between those flat spots is longer, and my downtime is shorter thanks to a medication. Um, some people are you know, four square against medication. I would recommend, if it's indicated, there's a cheek swab DNA test, kind of like Ancestry.com. They take your DNA from a cheek swab and they try to match your metabolism to the antidepressant or anti-anxiety medication that will work best with your metabolism. So there's a little less of that going on, tapering off, going on, you know, trying to find the right combination. But yeah, and I have something called, and this is a little more rare, it's called chronic suicidal ideation. And Every time I've spoken except once, somebody in the audience has that. What it means is for people like me and people in my tribe, the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. And when I say small, a couple of years ago, my car broke down. I had three thoughts unbidden. Get it fixed, buy a new one. Or I could just kill myself. That's how small, you know, it just pops up as option C all the time. What I've discovered is, is that Every time except once when I spoke, there was somebody, sometimes more than one somebody in the audience who has chronic suicidal ideation 
and they didn't know that it had a name. They thought because of the way their brain worked, they were just some kind of freak and completely alone. Uh, a young woman at a college presentation said, I want to thank you for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She said, but I got to tell you, it made me weep. I said, how did it make you weep? She goes, you know your story about the car, get it fixed, buy a new one, or you could just kill yourself? She said, I've been having those thoughts my entire life. I didn't know that had a name. I thought I was just some kind of freak. And when I heard you say that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life that I am not alone, she said, and I wept. And that that's my why right there, Curtis. That's that's my purpose and my passion is to to help people understand that no, you're not alone. There's lots of us out there. And and she said, you know, I've, I've been having these thoughts all my life. I thought I'd grow out of it. I said, well, I'm 62. I, if I'm going to grow out of it, I better get started. I said, the good news is you don't have to act on those thoughts. They're just thoughts. I'm, I'm so used to them that it's not a serious thought anymore. It just, you know, it's just option C. And I kind of chuckled to myself. Yeah, there's a good idea and move on. So that the, 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 uh, the, why, the why for me is, is, is maybe I've steered these people just far enough off the path to suicide, letting them know they're not alone that they'll live a normal, you know, normal life from that point forward. So that's, that's, that's why I do what I do. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning. I go to bed thinking about it. I wake up thinking about it. It's my purpose and my passion. And I coach speakers and I said, look, if you want to be a successful speaker, my advice is you need to pick a lane, you know, don't be everything to everybody and pick something you're, you're passionate about. And in my case, somebody said to me, how'd you pick suicide and, and, and uh, depression as topics? I go, well, you know what? The topics actually picked me. I didn't have I didn't have a hand in it. I just I'm just along for the ride. And that is ideal for a TEDx, too, by the way. The number one thing you need to to land a TEDx is be passionate about whatever you're talking about. My question I have about that uh, option C that you were talking about and how some people don't act on it and they just kind of have it as an afterthought. Are there people that actually will act on that that'll say, oh, I could get a new car. I could, you know, get out a loan to get a new car. I can kill myself. And they just go up. Oh, that's yeah, the that, That's it. I'm done. See you later. Uh, you know, oddly, Curtis, uh, that is my superpower. Um, because, because I know that I can do it anytime that I've crossed that barrier where I, I know that I can, you know, um, I, I tell people I sit in the exit row on an airplane in the window seat and I can open the door anytime and go. That allows me to stand a great deal of pain. If it weren't for my chronic suicidal ideation, I might have killed myself a long time ago, ironically. Because, you know, suicide is not so much about wanting to die. People say to me, why did so-and-so want to die? Well, chances are so-and-so didn't want to die. So-and-so just wanted to end the pain, and that was the only way to do it. So knowing I can, I can end it at any moment is my superpower, and it helps me continue living. We had, a, we had wildfires here in Oregon, and we, we our house... It got to within a mile and a quarter of our house. And so the authority said, you know, get out, get out now. Don't look back. Don't take anything with you because wildfires move very quickly. Well, I was 25 minutes away and we have 11 rescue cats in that house. And we're like the Marine Corps. We never leave anybody behind. So I drove basically into a fire to rescue 
those 11 cats and happy ending. I got them all in cages or, you know, carriers got them all in the car and they're all fine. But a friend of mine said, you, you could have died, you know, driving back into a fire. And I said, you know, I've been trying to kill myself for 40 years. I, I, I don't want to die, but I'm not scared of it. And I said, if you're going to go, for goodness sakes, go doing something, you know, notable, like he died saving kitties. So, uh, and then somebody said, well, you could have died in the fire. You could have burned to death. No, I have a, a handgun. And so if the, if the flames were licking my toes, Curtis, I'm not burning up. I'm, I'll just eat the gun before I'll, before I'll burn alive. So uh, again, it's oddly my superpower. I'm willing to pull the trigger, so I'm not going to die in a fire. So it allowed me to drive back into this, you know, this area where they were screaming at everybody to get out and don't look back to round up herd cats, which I have a great deal of more respect for that saying now, having tried to get 11 of them in a carrier. But, and fortunately, you know, we made it out alive and, and everybody's hailing hearty and the house didn't burn down. Thank the Lord. Well, you talk about, you know, what the barrel of your gun tastes like. And, and so you've been down that path before. What made you not um, take your life? Well, I had a million dollar life insurance policy. So people who are depressed and suicidal, there are three legs on that stool. One is you socially withdraw, either move or just withdraw from social activities, social isolation. Two, you have already decided in your mind you're willing to do it. You're willing to end your life. And three is something called burdensomeness. You feel like the world would be better off without you. Uh, you know, people say suicide is a selfish act, not to the person who's thinking about it. Because I was thinking about my wife. I'm thinking, you know, I've got a million dollar life insurance policy. So if I die, she'll be brokenhearted, but she certainly will not be broke. She'll have a million dollars. She can be restored financially. Trouble was, Curtis, my policy had a two-year suicide clause. If you kill yourself anytime in the first 12 months, I'm sorry, 24 months, it pays nothing. It just returns the premiums. If you go 24 months in a day, it pays a million dollars to your, you know, your heirs. And I call my insurance agent and turns out I'd had the policy for 22 months. So I had two months to wait to kill myself. And the way I made it those two months was knowing that at two months in a day, I could in fact pull the trigger. So that's how I survived those 60 days. Now, by the time I got to day 61 and you know the policy was in force, I things had improved just enough I, I really don't recall that day. I don't recall thinking I could do it today. Things must have gotten, you know, just better enough that I didn't end up taking my life and and having, you know, giving a million dollars to my wife. So that that's why I didn't pull the trigger. I could not leave her brokenhearted and broke. So I had to wait two months. Yeah, I actually know somebody who hung themselves. They had some financial issues, so they themselves to give their wife the uh, insurance policy. Very common. Uh, again, people think it's a selfish act. Well, you know, didn't he think about his wife? As a matter of fact, he was thinking about his wife, chances are, and that she would she would receive the money when he was gone. So she'd be brokenhearted, but, you know, she would be restored perhaps financially. Right. Let's talk about your favorite comedian. Who's your favorite comedian and why? I love Bill Burr. 
on this side of the pond. I like him because he's when when you watch him, it sounds like he's just coming off the top of his head with it. Like I know he's prepared it. I know he's worked on it, rehearsed it, but he delivers it in such a way that it appears he's just talking off the top of his head. And on the other side of the pond in England, there's a guy named Jimmy Carr. Very much the same way. Good writer. Um, some of his stuff's a little on the blue side, dirty, but really well written, topical, political. He's got a baby face. You you can't believe he's saying the things he's saying the way he looks. So on this side of the pond, Bill Burr. On that side of the pond, Jimmy Carr. And um, yeah, and I've got favorites from the past. There was a guy named Bill Hicks who uh, died of pancreatic cancer. Um, he, he too was very popular in England. When, when Bill Hicks died, he was so popular in England that they had a moment of silence in Parliament. So I've got some you know favorites from the past, many of whom have died, and some by suicide. I do a podcast with a friend of mine, another comedian who has mental illness, called the Suicide Prevention Punchline. Because so many comedians and other creative people die by suicide, we do a podcast. So it's... Um, it you know the there's I believe there's a connection between mental illness and mental ableness. I did a whole TED, TEDx talk on it. It's called Mental with Benefits: The Evolutionary Advantages of Mental Illness. Because there's so many people who are so good at something that I just I thought it can't be a coincidence. And you know what? Two weeks ago on on 60 Minutes, they profiled several people with autism, several people on the autism spectrum, and 30. Fortune 500 companies are now hiring people on the autism spectrum for their special ability. So I, I believe I believe I'm not broken, nor are those people. I believe we were made this way. That mental illness is actually a duality. It's not it's not just mental illness. It often comes with a certain mental ableness. Uh, I believe my mental ableness is imagination, creativity, comic ability, the way I think. But, you know, there's there's actors and singers and athletes and politicians who have mental health issues, but they're very successful. And I think that's, you know, it's 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 part and parcel of the way their brains are wired. Well, my son is eight and he's on the autism spectrum. So hopefully he grows to be as successful as you. Well, and does he have any particular abilities, um, you know, beyond the, the uh, normal child? Um, well, he has ADHD as well, he, but he's real talkative. I mean, he's, uh, he's talkative. He can get along with people and strike up a conversation with anybody. That is a superpower. Not everybody's wired that way. You know, especially a child who has an issue with, you know, is on the spectrum. Because sometimes, you know, there are social issues, missing social cues. But if he is that outgoing and affable, um, and what, what I said in my TEDx talk was, whatever the child does really well, we should encourage that, wrap our arms around it, embrace it, treat the illness, but energize the mental ableness and make the IEP, the individual education plan, truly in individual. So if he's that verbal, then, you know, then make sure that the curriculum he's, he's, he's taking takes advantage of that verbal ability and steer him in the direction of a career where, like I said, where the companies that hire him would appreciate ex exactly what he does, his abilities, and they would reward him for that, if that makes sense. Absolutely. 
Hey, what was your worst uh, comedy show and why? Um, do you have any? Oh, Lord. Every comedian has. Um, matter of fact, it's, you know, it's hard, Curtis, for a comedian to tell you what the best one was, but the worst ones, chapter and verse. Uh, probably the worst was my first cruise. My wife and I were flown into the Caribbean. Somebody, some comedian on a ship was in the middle of a cruise, two-week cruise at holiday time, you know, Christmas, New Year's, and got fired, and they needed somebody in a hurry, so they flew my wife and me to the Caribbean first class. And we got on the ship, and I did two shows, 45 minutes each, to absolute complete silence. My wife said it was so quiet, she could hear the tongue sticking to the roof of my mouth. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I just stood there and smiled and delivered like they were having a great time. She said, from her perspective, sitting in the audience, it was like watching somebody you love get beat up, but there's absolutely nothing you can do. So those probably my two were shows and they were back to back. I mean, I did some one-nighters here and there during that seven years I was on the road and, you know, everything happened from people throwing chairs to pulling a gun while I was on stage. Um, but yeah, but, but pound for pound, minute for minute, those two 45 minute shows to complete silence were probably the worst I ever had. Now the best I opened up for Randy Travis in a amphitheater in Michigan one summer, did two shows, two nights, 5,000 people each night and coming out to 10,000 eyeballs. When you're, when you're not a singer, you don't have a band, there's no music, you're just out there, you and a microphone is quite the rush. Well, I tell you, that night uh, somebody pulled a gun while you were on stage, that must have been half off on alcohol night. Well, it was, they, they didn't like, they liked the guy before me. They didn't like me in the least. And I looked down and I couldn't see very far into the audience because of the lights, but I could see over the shoulder of the guy in the front row was the hand of the guy in the second row holding a nickel plated 38 with a hammer back pointed at me. So I turned sideways to make a smaller target, lowered my elbow to cover my vital organs and just waited. And this is, in, this is in Kingsport, Tennessee. And I, this is pure East Tennessee. A woman in the back got tired of waiting. She screamed either shoot him or put it away. So fortunately he put it away. <laughs> That's a good thing. Do you have any projects that you're working on right now? Any upcoming engagements or books or anything like that? Have you ever written a book? Uh, yes. As a matter of fact, uh, two women and I, a psychologist and a therapist, have written, well, we have a series of four books on men's mental health. And two of them are available now. One was released in March. One was released in August. And it's sort of like the chicken soup for the soul books. Each Each book has the stories of 12 men. Each man has a different struggle. And in each story, it begins with things are good. And in the middle, things go bad. And at the end, here's how I'm coping. Because men told us when we surveyed them as to what they wanted in the way of a book on men's mental health. They said, look, we want real men, real stories, and how they're really coping. Because men tend to take advice from men. So the first two books are out. Um, the ebook of the first, the first ebook is actually a bestseller on Amazon. I recorded for Audible the first book. I'm working on narrating the second book. I'm, I'm going to narrate them all. Matter of fact, if you'd like to, to listen to the book, my website is The Mental Health Comedian. The Mental Health Comedian. If you go there, 
put in an email address. You can download the MP3 unabridged audio of that first book on men's mental health that I narrated. I absolutely will go do that. I definitely want to check it out. Um, do you have any social media sites that my listeners can connect with you on and give out that website again so they can connect with you? Yes. Um, if you type in the mental health comedian without the dot com, you will all of my social media will come up because all the sites, that's what I'm, I call myself on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, the mental health comedian. Uh, and if you go to the mental health comedian dot com, of course, there's little icons there for each of those social media sites. Um, and I have another site called um, www.yourtedxcoach.com. If you're thinking about doing a TEDx, it goes over the basically three modules, how it works and what I teach. And, and I've got a course coming up, uh, a speaker, speaker consulting company called me and said, look, Frank, we give out a lot of information on TEDx. We haven't got anybody who can monetize it. Would you consider doing like a 90-minute on-demand online course for, I don't know, $249? I said, sure. So I'll be recording that in the next couple of weeks, and it should be available by the middle of November. The site, the, the website is called SpeakerFlow, F-L-O-W, SpeakerFlow.com. And eventually, I'll have a, a course on there for $249, which will walk you through the getting the TEDx, walk you through the process. Is there anything, any topics that we haven't touched on that you would like to talk about before we go? If you are suicidal, call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Or if you're younger, you know, texting is kind of a younger person's thing. There's a text line. You text the word help to 741741. There'll be somebody about your age on the other end of the line because younger people are more forthcoming in text. If you're simply having a bad day, my advice is, and I do this at every keynote I give, my advice is if you're having a bad day, not suicidal, but just having a really bad day, call a crazy person. And here's my phone number. It's 858-405-5653, 858-405-5653. The reason I say call a crazy person is, is we are less likely to be judgmental. You don't have to explain a lot of things to us because we hear the same music and we're just probably just going to listen and sort of co-sign whatever, you know, BS you're going through. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, Frank King. Frank, <laughs> hey, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Curtis. And the kitty cat didn't didn't make a peep. I can't believe it wasn't crying through our entire podcast. Absolutely. Meow. Yeah. For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream.